Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Just as you turn that up, let me encourage you that in a number of different ways, the book of Acts is uh, coming alive in uh, our life as a church. We've just heard from Andrew. Think of uh, the Lord Jesus' promise right at the beginning of the church, before the church was birthed. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the gospel will go to the very ends of the earth. That uh, meant Rome in the ancient world. Now it's uh, got to Tanjin in the most powerful country in the 21st century world. Do pray for Andrew and their family. Just a little bit on the video there. You may have picked it up. Their eldest daughter, Sophia, um, that word really discouraged. Let me encourage you to pray for her this week that she would be really encouraged. Life is not easy for her in all sorts of ways, educationally and friendships. You can understand that. Do pray for her. So the gospel is being fulfilled before our eyes in China, as we saw. And uh, it's also been encouraging for me this week to, to get some emails from some of you praying for boldness. I encourage you to do that last week. And some of you are. And lo and behold, opportunities are being given to you. We shouldn't be surprised. I was uh, at a meeting on Friday of this week with seven or eight people, and we were sharing together to pray, and, and, and almost everybody in the group was saying that for some reason, into their life, someone had come along that they were sharing their faith with. And uh, that is encouraging, and we should not be too surprised. Let me encourage you as you think about uh, Quench this Tuesday, this Thursday, to pray for boldness. We cannot do these things in our own strength. Now let's read Acts 6, 1 through 7. A little short reading, but uh, really good stuff here practically for us to learn from. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God or serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, as we've worked through the book of Acts over this term, this historical account of the birth and growth of the early church, we've tried, as far as we can, to cut with the grain of the text in the way that Luke writes it. And Luke has a number of threads that run through his narrative. One of them is, I guess the most obvious, the dynamic supernatural growth empowered by the Holy Spirit of the church. Rapid growth, that's one line that runs through these early chapters. Another line that runs through them really is a counter to that line, and that is the opposition to the growth and to the spread of the gospel. And it encouraged us that our prayers for the opposition, the experience when the return were answered and the gospel is pushed through. Don't relax, though. Keep praying. 
for another dose will be around the corner for them. That's just how the, the gospel goes forward. So we get this line of growth and this line of opposition. And another line that runs through these early chapters of Acts is little descriptions of the life of the spirit community. It's as if the lid is lifted off the kind of South Hall equivalent in the early church, and we get to see inside the Christian community. Uh, Let me just point you to these little descriptions. The first one is in chapter 2. Turn back there. Chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. That's the first little description of the early Christian community. Let me read a, a little bit of that. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done. All who believed, verse 44, were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. It is a striking picture of what a spirit-filled community is like. There's devotion in what they do. Devotion's a great word. It encompasses seriousness, commitment, and pleasure in what you do. It's not just rigorous hard work. It is that, but it's commitment and zeal and love and devotion and heart for what you do. That spirit-filled community was serious about the apostles' teaching. For us, that means a commitment to the Word of God contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And that spirit-filled community from the start is one where the relationships between its members are real. Real in the sense of real, solid, practical care for one another. Those in need were provided for. And one of the striking features of that uh, spirit-empowered community, this first little uh, picture of the early church, is that there was continual gospel growth. That is a wonderful sign of health. Not big numbers necessarily, but just people becoming Christians. And I'm encouraged that here that is happening. There were no coffee shops in the ancient world, I'm sure. But if there were, you can be sure that this early spirit-empowered community would be hiring Costa Coffee for quench or something like that. That's the first little description. Now, turn on to number 2, chapter 4, verse 32. It's the second little description. Verses uh, 32 to 37 of chapter 4. The full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was Upon them all, not a needy person among them. One heart and soul, unity, united by the Spirit of God. Once again, in this description, a community of real care, practical commitment, whereas members shared practically with one another. Community, verse 33, where the simple biblical gospel is preached and spoken and shared. Christ crucified, Christ alive, Christ reigning. And in a community where the gospel is proclaimed, that simple gospel, that community, and Luke uses this phrase, is shaped by grace. What it means is that when the gospel 
transforms a Christian community. People are humble, servant-hearted, sharing their faith. And then chapter 6, this third little description. Luke's third little description, chapter 6, 1 to 7, of the Spirit-filled Christian community. Now, the title I've chosen for the talk is A Healthy Church. Here is a picture of a healthy church. And a healthy church is a happy and a united church. So, verse 5, what they said, the decision they took, pleased not just the apostles, but the whole community. A healthy church is a happy church. And a healthy church is a growing church. Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied. Now let's unpack this in a bit more detail. You'll see on the service sheet some headings. Firstly, a healthy church recognizes needs and responds. So verse 1, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, this daily distribution was the sharing of money and no doubt food purchased by that money to those who were in need. That's mentioned in all three of the descriptions of the early church. And this distribution, helping uh, those who were in need, encompassed widows and uh, They were a group who had needs. Now, I think it's perfectly legitimate to conclude from the text that there was no intention on the part of the apostles that had led to this circumstance that some were not being provided for. But nonetheless, it had happened. People were not having their needs met. And there was a complaint. And what did the apostles do? What did the leaders of this church do? Before we get to the solution, let's not miss what is a critical step. What did they do? They listened. They took the complaint seriously. They might have ignored the complaint, but they didn't. They might have pretended to listen and not really listen. Have you ever done that? Have you ever felt that somebody has done that when you've mentioned something that's on your heart to them? They might have done that. They didn't. They did listen. The church had committed to care for those in need, and there were people in need who weren't being cared for. That is important, and the apostles listened and took that very seriously. A church where the leadership does not listen will not recognize needs and so be able to respond to them. And that is true for us as a church. Where in our church are there people not being cared for, not being discipled? And there are. Where in our church are there people not being built up in their faith, not being encouraged, not being embraced into the heart of the family? Where are people not being ministered to? A church needs to listen and look that it might recognize where there is real need. One of my Bible commentaries makes the following point by way of application. The writer says this, and I quote, In church life, there is a very real difference between a complaint that reveals a need and a complaint from somebody who just complains about everything. 
That's a fair comment, and the discerning ear will tell. But I wonder if that uh, writer is correct. Is it not the case, or should it not be the case, that a church family that really cares for people, or a leadership that really cares for the church, should be just as attentive to the person who complains just because they complain, not to do what they want, but to respond in a way that recognizes that that person is out of sorts, unhappy soul who needs more than anyone the care of the church. Now, there's one other dimension to the complaint raised here, and it's uh, really helpful if we can see this and get this in our heads. We need a bit of background. Who are the Hellenists and the Hebrews? In the early church, almost everybody who was converted was a Jew. And the Hebrews were the Jews who lived in Jerusalem and Palestine. They spoke Hebrew, and they were thoroughly immersed in everything you could think of about Hebrew culture, all the traditions of Hebrew culture. The Hellenists were Jews, but they were uh, scattered, or their ancestors had been, and they spoke Greek, and they lived with a Greek culture. An ever-present threat to a church community is disunity. Disunity is literally the breakdown of community. And church communities are, by their very nature, diverse. We are all sorts in a church here. I'd love us to be a little more all sorts than we are, but we are all sorts. And all sorts can so easily divide one group criticizing the other. Now, whether or not it was true, by intention or otherwise, that some of the widows from the, uh, one of the groups was being disadvantaged over the other, given the potential tensions between these groups because they were different, it would just take one tiny little smidgen or iota of difference to lead to that disunity. You see what is happening? I suspect that the Hebrews and the Hellenists like different things about church life, like different traditions, more or less, like different music, maybe. And just one little difference, and one group begins to criticize another, one network begins to criticize another, maybe younger criticize older, older criticize younger. And that's exactly what happens in the life of a church. What do we do? What do the apostles do? They listened that they might recognize a need. A healthy church listens so that it might recognize needs and respond. Whose job is it to listen? The leadership of a church. Who is the leadership of the church? Me and the elders. Yes, but a healthy church listens when you listen to and talk to us. I keep saying to people in the church, that uh, I, I long for people to tell me what they think. I'm not a prophet. Our elders aren't prophets. We need to listen to each other. We're as a church uh, getting to that kind of critical juncture, and we'll see in a moment uh, 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 when churches begin to come under pressure, it's when they grow. We have maybe 350, a little bit more, nearly up to 400 people, something like that. My textbooks tell me you are about to enter crisis red zone. 
When you get to that, you've got to, that's a difficult position to be in as a church. What do you do? What do you do? It gets a bit bigger. The relationships have to be a bit more stretched. You listen and discern where the needs are and respond to them. Now let's look at how they responded under the second heading. A healthy church shares ministry according to uh, gifts. As I've said, a common reason for a church community to struggle is when it grows. So the beginning of verse 1, in these days when the disciples were increasing a number, a growing church, practically speaking, logically, obviously gets stretched and it finds itself struggling to meet the legitimate needs of people important as they are. And in this particular instance, here in Acts 6, it was the apostles who were doing the distribution, the distribution of money and food. And they were just too stretched. I think it's as practical and as simple as that. There was no intention on their part to be unfair. There was no intention to be unfair, but they were just too stretched, too much under pressure, and they came to see that. And I think it's also fair to say that they came to see not only that they couldn't do it, but that they shouldn't do it. Shouldn't in the sense... That the Lord Jesus had given them a specific commission and specific gifts to preach the gospel. And if there were needs that they could not and perhaps should not do, God had gifted other people to do these things. So what, did, what could they do faced with this problem? Well, they could ignore it. They didn't do that. <laughs> they could carry on making a bad job of it. How often does that happen in a church? Let's just carry on and soldier on and make the best of it. They didn't do that either. What they did is they listened and they recognized an important need and they sought to identify people specifically gifted by God to fulfill that need. They, they knew that God would have gifted people to that end. And so the second half of verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God as serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to, his, to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they did pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte. These they set before the apostles and laid their hands on them. The principle, a healthy church, shares ministry according to gifts. That is a key principle established here right at the beginning of the church. And a principle emphasized throughout the New Testament. For example, the descriptions of the church in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, are of a body made up of many parts. Each part with a key function. A healthy body has its different parts functioning well. A lung is not a kidney. And a kidney is not a liver. However healthy your lung is or your kidney is, it needs a liver. And vice versa. This church is chock full of medics. Some of you medics are thinking he's not mentioned the gallbladder, which is of no use to you really if it comes out. That's the exception to the rule. As is the appendix. And probably some other parts of your body. But the point is obvious, isn't it? One part can't function without the other. So why try and force a kidney to be a liver? Why in a church try to get somebody gifted that way to do that kind of thing? And of course, that happens all over churches. Let me read you the Romans description. It's full of very practical 
stuff. Think of the range of gifts described here in, in this great letter of Romans that explains the gospel. Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, it's like that in the church. Having gifts that differ according to what God has given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts or encourages in his exhortation, the one who contributes, give generously. It's very practical that people who have a lot of money, who are good at making money, to give generously. The one who leads with vision, zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with a cheerful heart. A healthy church shares ministry according to gifts. Now, let me make a really important point at this juncture. And that is to say this, that the practical ministry these seven people were being set apart from is not less spiritual than the apostles' focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. Everything in our culture says that the people who stand up here on this stage and do the ministry of the word stuff, or the people who are evangelists in the church, or the people who teach our small groups, or lead our Sunday club work, that's the kind of special spiritual stuff. And the stuff that's not up front is less spiritual. Everything in our culture leads us to that conclusion. Prominence means more spiritual. Well, Luke, in so many ways, nails down the fact that that is not the case. How? One, as we have seen through Acts, this practical work of caring for one another is a key feature of the community created by the Spirit. So why is it that in these three descriptions of the early church, this sharing practically is given such prominence? Because it is an important ministry. Secondly, the word serve in the phrase serve tables, verse 2, and the word ministry in the phrase ministry of the word is the same Greek word, diakonai, which means serve or minister. The word minister in our language in church life gets associated with people like me. I am no more a minister than any of you, according to the New Testament. All in a church do ministry, just different kinds. We're all servants. Thirdly, what kind of people did the apostles choose? Verse 3. Did they go and look for the seven people who were the kind of least gifted and lurked around the back of the church and uh, they just needed to find a job and needed doing so they went to them because they weren't doing these other kind of ministries. What did they do? Verse 3. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Luke records their names. Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. Why does he record their names? To make the point that their ministries are not nameless but significant. Fifth reason. That they are spiritual people. Spiritual ministries. Next week, Neil MacDonald will preach on the first martyrdom in the church. Who is the first martyr in the church? Is it Peter? Is it John? It's Stephen. This man full of the Spirit 
whose job in the church is to meet the practical needs of these widows. There is no ministry in the church more or less spiritual than another. Now, let me try to describe now what is meant by in church life for us what uh, Luke describes as the apostles' responsibility of preaching the word of God and prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, we don't have apostles in the church. So what is the kind of equivalent of that for us? Preaching the word of God, verse 2, and prayer and the ministry of the word. What is encompassed in that? Well, it means, I think, first, those with a particular gift for evangelism. All of us have a responsibility to tell the gospel. That is absolutely fundamental in the book of Acts. But some have a particular gift for evangelism. And those with that particular gift should not be prevented from using that gift because they are doing a lot of other things. Some of you are gifted evangelists. Some of you are really great at working the ground. Here's the official line from me as one of the elders in the church. You have my permission to duck out of any meeting you like this week if that meeting is going to stop you working the ground with your mates and bringing them along to Costa Coffee. In fact, you get a permission to duck out of any meeting from now on if that's what you're going to do, if you're gifted to do that. Just there's a little thought I've had that sometimes we don't want to do the things that God has gifted us for. We want to do other stuff, perhaps, because it's, we perceive a little easier. In the end, it's not. Also embraced within preaching the word of God and prayer in the ministry, the word, of course, is preaching. Preaching the gospel and preaching the word of God and also other contexts in the life of a church where the word of God is taught Small group leaders, Sunday club, youth, church, and so on and so forth. And it's important as a church that we identify who these people are, people with preaching and teaching gifts. You don't uh, share leading of a Bible study around because that's a, a kind of thing that is good to do. You share it around those who are gifted to teach. And let those folks who are so gifted to teach and preach, do it. Encourage them. Nurture them and train them in these gifts. And if they are not teaching the Bible well, because they are doing all sorts of other things that others are gifted to do, then we need to relieve them of these other things that they might do it well. You have all sorts of subtle ways of hinting to me when I'm not teaching the Bible well. You do it very gently. My wife filters that gentleness into clarity. My job in this church, above all else, is to teach the Bible well. And that takes time. There are no shortcuts to preaching. Let me tell you why. There are no shortcuts to teaching a Bible study well. There are no shortcuts to teaching Sunday club well. Let me tell you why that is. It's just, 
how it is. God doesn't yield that stuff easily. It takes 15 to 20 hours to write any sermon. It does when you've done one. It does when you've done a thousand. It's just how it is. Uh, it's just how it is. I'm not telling you that. To, I'm just telling you because it it's true. And if you do it in seven or eight hours, it just, it's just not the same. And the other, the other challenging, profoundly challenging thing I find in this verse is, is that when you are engaged in the ministry of the word, what's the little adjunct to the phrase ministry of the word? Prayer and ministry of the word. You've got to back it up with prayer. You've got to ground it in prayer. What about the kind of ministries the seven exercised in the church? What kind of applications can we draw from them? What might fall within their compass? Well, think about the list in Romans. Serving in all sorts of ways, encouraging, giving financially, acts of mercy. Elsewhere in the New Testament, references made to gifts like hospitality, administration, encompassed within administration, the smooth running of a church, good lines of communication, finances, buildings, legal matters, all important. And the apostle is saying, in your life as a church, many of you do these kind of things habitually in your day-to-day lives, and you do it extremely well. Companies are run efficiently. Businesses are run efficiently. Don't leave all that mentality at the door when you come into a church. Run them well. And relish those so gifted to do. There are those gifted to lead in music. Encourage them in that sharing of their gifts. There are some responsibilities that extend across the spectrum of a church. The pastoral care of the church family. Whose uh, responsibilities that's mine? The elders? Small group leaders? But all of ours. All of ours. It's all of ours just as a logical consequence of the fact that we're converted. We have 350 adults. There is no way humanly that seven or eight people can really deeply pastorally care for that number of people. It's got to be a kind of network, a mesh that runs through a whole church family. A healthy church shares ministry according to giftedness. And that requires two things. One, the ownership of this principle by the whole church. It is striking in Luke's little description of what happened that the apostles, verse 2, summon all the church together to sort out this issue. In verse 5, the whole church owned the decision. There's no point in the apostles here saying a healthy church shares ministry according to gifts if the whole church doesn't buy into that principle. Otherwise, it won't happen. And secondly, a healthy church shares ministry according to gifts when those who are gifted in different ways by God are willing to use these gifts for the good of the health of the community. So if you're a liver, you need to be a liver. And we're willing to be a liver in the body. You know, kidney... I could go on and on. If you're gifted to teach, teach with all your heart and use that gift. Don't let it lie dormant. If you're gifted to administer, 
administer for the health of the body. Administration is a wonderful gift. It is completely beyond my understanding of how anyone can do it. But I have people who surround me who are brilliant at it. And thank God for them. If your gift is encouraging, go and encourage people. Be a Barnabas. What a wonderful gift that is. If your gift is earning lots of money, don't go to work tomorrow on a guilt trip. Be very wise. Earn money and give generously for the work of the gospel in the world. If your gifts are in practically helping those in need. And it runs to the simple stuff of giving money and material things, a roof over their heads, a room in your house for six weeks, six months, whatever it is, to those in need. Then open your home. Do it gladly and be a healthy body. And if you're a minister... I've just used the word that I promised I wouldn't use. If you are somebody who does what I do, stop doing all the things that other people are gifted to do. That's often the way it is, not just for me, for you as well. It's not that, in a sense, uh, I'm looking for you to say, make me do this, and you're looking for me to say to you, make you do that. The problem is that I often do stuff that I shouldn't do, and you often do stuff. It's kind of human nature. If I don't do it, it'll collapse healthy church shares ministry according to gifts. Now, finally, a healthy church is committed to growth through the Word. As a result of the decision made at this juncture in the early church to set apart these seven to fulfill these important practical and caring responsibilities, the apostles were able to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So verse 7, the Word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's a little breakthrough. The priests became obedient to the faith. Now, there is a key marker statement that runs right through the book of Acts for growth in the church. And here it is. The word of God increased, or the word of God spread. It's here in chapter 6. We find it again in chapter 12, 24, at a critical juncture. Acts 19.20, again at a critical juncture, the word of God increased. Life comes through the word. The Christian's life deepens through the word. The church cannot grow if the gospel is not preached. And the church cannot grow if people don't tell the gospel. The Christians in the church cannot grow, at least in a healthy way, if the word of God is not preached, taught. People are not discipled by the word of God. At our last elders meeting, one of our elders asked a very, very challenging question. The kind of question that was a little silence moment after it. How can we ensure, they asked, that we can remain at Chalmers, a Bible-centered church, for the next a hundred years. What a good question that is. The answer is preach the word, teach the word, give those gifted to do that time and space to do it well. Allow the evangelist freedom to tell the gospel. If they are doing other things, tell them not to. 
tell them that in the church, God has gifted many people to do these other ministries. If you are one of the people gifted for a particular ministry that is not an upfront Bible teaching ministry, and remember all the stuff that Luke does to make that ministry just as spiritual as any other. If you are one of these people, remember that as you share and serve in the body in that way, the Word of God is able to be preached and taught and the gospel shared. You are making that body healthy. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you don't feel that you have a ministry in a church. Maybe you don't feel part of the body. Maybe you feel like a square peg in a round hole. Maybe you feel like you're not in any hole at all. Well, go back to the beginning of this. What does a healthy church do? It recognizes needs. It listens and responds. So I encourage you to talk to me or to one of the elders or to one another because we want to listen, talk together, and grow healthier as a church. I mentioned at the beginning that we're about to enter, according to my textbooks and church growth, danger red zone one. What do we do? Put a sign up at the door saying we're about to enter danger red zone one. What do we do? We listen. We recognize needs. We respond. We share ministry according to gifts. We commit together to grow through the word of God. And we will be a healthy, living Christian community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this uh, powerful and helpful and practical passage in your word. Help us, Lord, to be so uh, a listening community, to listen, to recognize needs and so respond. And to share ministry out according to gifts, Lord, thank you. And we pray, Lord, that you would really ground this principle deep into our hearts, that different ministries in the church are not more or less spiritual than others. They're just different. You gift us differently. Help us, Lord, to use the gifts that you have given us, knowing that the non-use of them will contribute to the lack of health of the body, and the use of them will contribute to its health. And may we all together be a church that is committed to allowing the life-changing gospel of the Lord Jesus to be clearly heard, the word of God preached and taught and our children taught the Scriptures so that they will come and many will come to living faith in Jesus. Lord, we long to be a healthy church. We want to be a healthy church because a healthy church is a church that grows with people becoming Christians and a healthy church is a happy church. It's a great place to be. That's what we long for. Thank you for the many evidences and signs of that already in our church life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.